0: It's been weeks since we were in Hebrews together. I'm going to pick it up today, but then we won't be doing it next week again. Um, I'm committed to seeing this, this Hebrews uh, thing through, because there, there are things here that we need to get hold of, which will really change our lives. And in fact, the, the three verses we're looking at today are, I believe, life-changing. If we believe them, they will change us. Hebrews 4.14 is where the next chapter of Hebrews should start, really. Uh, The numbering of chapters and verses in your Bible is not part of the inspiration of Scripture. It was added by well-meaning humans. But there's a new topic starting here, and it is this, that Jesus, who is better, this is the whole theme of Hebrews, is greater than angels, greater than Moses. He is our great high priest. This theme runs from Hebrews 4.14 414 to 510, we're told that Jesus, our great high priest, is greater than Aaron, the first high priest, and the whole Levitical priesthood. Then in Hebrews 511 to 621, there's another warning section, which will take us some time to work through. Then in Hebrews 7, we're told that Jesus is a king and priest of the order not of Aaron and Levi, but of Melchizedek, this strange king of Salem, and priest of the Most High God, who blessed Abraham and gave him bread and wine, and Abraham then tithed all that he had to Melchizedek. That's our forward track, but today we're considering just these three verses at the end of chapter 4. Let's read them through. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast, our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted, tried, tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is our great high priest, far greater and better than all before him. In fact, now that he's become our great high priest, we don't need other priests at all. That's why I reject priestly titles and offices in the Church of Christ. We have one great high priest, the Lord Jesus, and he makes every believer, male and female, priests of God. If you pick up the notes, you'll see the scriptures I've referenced there leadership and roles in home and family, I believe according to scripture, are gender differentiated. There are some roles appropriate to men and roles appropriate to women. But we are all, male and female, priests of God. It's not a leadership function. It's something that is every believer's inheritance free access to God through Jesus. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. We have him. He's ours. This great high priest. He's ours. Not someone else's. Yeah? Not some other group of people. He's ours. The cry of Job was that he might have an umpire or advocate who would act as a mediator and present his case before God. He complains in chapter 9. There's no umpire between us, no mediator who may lay his hands upon us both. Between me and God, he's saying. But a few chapters later... He declares with faith, even now my witness is on high. My advocate is on high. My av- witness is in high. You know, I have someone. He's he's understood something, he's had a revelation. There is someone who speaks for him. We have that advocate. We have a man in heaven to represent us, a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. This is Paul writing to And to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus he's our great high priest stands there for us represents us before the Father John puts it this way, when we study through 1 John my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin that's in a continuous sense, you may not continue in sin, if anyone sins on an occasion We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate. We have this representative. Job said umpire and witness. Paul uses mediator. John uses the language of advocator. But the writer to the Hebrews fixes upon Jesus as being a great high priest. All of those things are speaking of the same person. Jesus, the Son of God, who now appears before the Father for us. Let's think about what a priest is and does. A priest has the task of representing the people before God, making offerings or sacrifices for them, and interceding for them in his person, his prayers, and his priestly work. That is all summed up in Jesus. That's what we're reading about today, that he is our great high priest. And we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let's put this together. Jesus, this is in kind of time order. Jesus, born of the Virgin, lives amongst us, and during 33 years of life with us, he was tested in all things that we are, yet without sin. The, content, the, the background of this is priests were examined physically, and if there was any physical fault in them, they couldn't serve. They couldn't serve. There's, there's lists in Leviticus about you know, what parts of their body had to be sound and healthy for them to serve in the tabernacle, later in the temple. The sacrifices, the lambs, the, the goats that were brought were examined, and if there was any fault in them, they were damaged anyway. They could not be sacrificed. Priests and sacrifices had to be acceptable. Jesus was tested in every way that we are. How many of you know that life is testing and challenging? It's not just the, the appetites of our, of our bodies, the lusts of the flesh that we're dealing with. We're dealing with all kinds of things. We're dealing with, uh, with, with fear. We're dealing with anxieties. We're dealing with doubts. We're dealing with all sorts of stuff. We're dealing with all the nonsense and rubbish that the world throws at us. It's values and it's its warped sexuality and all of these things. Jesus was tempted, tested in every way that we are, yet did not sin. I'm grateful to John Piper who made this illustration. You imagine yourself as a rubber band, an elastic band. And you're, you're being tested, you're being tried. There's a point at which because you are frail, because you are weak, you will snap. But Jesus was tempted way beyond where you can possibly imagine. And did not snap. Way beyond what you can possibly think. Jesus was tested in every way that we are. You can say, was Jesus tempted in this way? The answer, the biblical answer is yes. But he did not give way to it. He did not sin. Yet, because he has been tested in the same ways, he knows our weaknesses. And he sympathizes with our frailty. Jesus is not austere. He's not up above and, oh, I don't know know what's going on with him. He knows us. Where we would fall, he stood. Where we give way, he resisted. He overcame every scrap of the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And because he was tested as priest and as sacrifice, he offered sacrifice for sin, not an animal, but his own body, his own blood. Full, final, perfect, complete sacrifice for all sin, for all time, by one sacrifice, Jesus himself. We celebrate it in bread and wine later. Then Jesus has passed through the heavens, which is to say, because in Hebrew we think about three heavens, the sky, the planets, the cosmos, and then the heaven of heavens, God's presence. Jesus is far exalted above all things. But there's more to this than physics or astronomy. Because in the Old Covenant, in the, in the way that God laid out the tabernacle, the closer you went in, the holier it got. Until there was a very center of the tabernacle, which was the Holy of Holies, where only God could dwell. And a priest visited that presence once a year and made sacrifice for sin, sprinkled blood on a gold little shelf, little, little, little box called the mercy seat. Once a year, made sacrifices. Jesus has entered into the highest of heavens and the most holy place. He's passed through the heavens. And what does he do there now? What is Jesus doing there now? Well, he's reigning and ruling over all things, but he's also our great high priest. And in his person and in his prayers, he makes intercession for us. How does Jesus pray? Go and read John 17. That's how Jesus prays. That's how he still prays for us. When we mess up, Father forgives them. Holy Spirit, please strengthen them. Jesus makes intercession, represents us. He speaks for us with understanding and compassion. He knows us. He himself was tested in every way that we are. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now here's, this is where this gets life changing. Because you in your little heart thought he doesn't understand me. You thought he looked down on this and that about you. Is that the truth? No. He knows our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. You imagine that he's going to dismiss you if you tell him about them. He already knows. He makes intercession for us. If you open the book of Revelation, the first vision of the Lord Jesus that, that, that Jesus himself gives to John is this, that Jesus is dressed in a, a simple robe reaching to his feet, tied with a golden girdle. That is the robe of a priest. Just a simple white linen robe that comes from, from his shoulders, down his arms, down to the floor. Bit like one that you see an Arab man wearing, you know, the, one of those long like, nightshirt things that goes on the floor. But it's, it's gathered around the middle with a golden sash. Jesus isn't wearing armor. Come on, let's go. You know, he's dressed in the simple white clothing of a priest. Because Jesus never stops, never quits being our great high priest, he never goes off duty. He's constantly sympathizing for us. Jesus is our great high priest and every word there counts. He's our high priest. He's our great high priest. Therefore, we need to step back to verse 13. There are two therefores here built around this fact that Jesus is our great high priest who makes intercession, who's made sacrifice, who's our advocate, our intercessor. He represents us before the Father and he sympathizes with us in every part of life. The first, therefore, is this. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. The word confession points back to our conversion and to baptism to our being baptized, and then it goes on into the way we now believe and live. We're always uh, carrying on how we started. You've been baptized, yes? If you haven't, tell us, we're going to do it. We've got a, we've got a pool hidden inside that table there, what well, it is when we put water in it. If you've never been baptized by immersion in water, we want to do that. Why? Because that's how you really get started as a Christian. It's how you make your confession. Paul wrote to Timothy, You made a good confession before many witnesses. When did Timothy do that? The answer, almost certainly, is when he was baptized. He made a good confession before many witnesses that he was now a believer in Jesus and giving himself to love and to serve Master Jesus. He made a good confession. We made a vow when we were baptized. Not just the little words that we get you to recite back. But the very act of baptism is you vow to love and serve Jesus Christ. To obey him. You make a confession. It's the same word in Greek. Confession and vow. It's the same word. You made a vow. Keep hold of your confession. Stand firm with your vow. In fact, the Bible says God is not really not in, at all impressed when we break our vows to Him. You said you're going to do it? Come on. Do it. How? We'll get to that in a minute. We go on just as we started, repenting of sin, trusting Jesus, obeying Him, calling on His name. It, we carry on the same. We keep naming His name in this world. We keep praying to Him. We keep trusting Him. We keep obeying Him. Don't deny Him. Don't step back from your confession, your vow. Hold very tightly. That takes me back to when I was a kid and the bus conductors used to say, hold very tight now. Hold tight to Jesus. Hold tight to your confession of Jesus. In fact, you probably need to keep saying it more often. It's very good for you, for you to confess that you're a Christian to people, to talk about the fact that you love and serve the Lord Jesus. It's good for you to do that. It could be good for them. It's a seed that's planted, maybe God will bring that to fruit. But it's actually good for you to bear witness as a Christian. Yeah? The second, therefore, is this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence or boldness. Let us draw near with boldness. Now, I know that they still play it on TV, so many of us will remember the early editions of Star Trek, where they mangled the English language by saying, to boldly go where no man has gone before. (laughs) Ignoring the bad grammar there, that's exactly what this Bible verse is telling us to do, to boldly enter into the presence of God and to receive mercy and grace. It doesn't even say ask for it that's kind of implied, but to actually receive mercy and grace in time of need and to come boldly, confidently. Let me give you an illustration of someone, someone asked boldly, confidently, Dad, can I have an ice cream? Right? Is that bold? Is that confident? They're, they're, almost, they're almost depending on the fact that that that, that dad's going to be kind and not say no. Yeah? They're kind of, you know, they're risking, they're rolling the dice, they're risking it. Dad isn't going to say no, is he? We're going to get an ice cream. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Not wimpishly, not doubtingly, not diffidently. I could keep going here with the soul words, but never mind. Boldly, confidently, that we're going to be accepted, we're going to be helped, heard, we're going to be helped. Why? Because we're important. Some preachers would say, because we're God's kids. And we're. No, because Jesus has made us completely acceptable. It's Paul writing to the Ephesians. Through him, through Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And then he says in chapter 3, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him the same words. It's One of the reasons I think that although the Greek of Hebrews is probably not Paul's Greek, it's Paul's sermon written by Luke into Greek. Because this is Paul's thinking. We have boldness and confident access, just like a kid demanding an ice cream to the Father. We come and ask of him. Do you know if we're doubting and diffident and distrustful and whatever else I could put in there... We're actually dishonoring the Lord because Jesus has made access for us to be bold. He's made us fully acceptable. He promises everything we need if we will ask. Here it is again later in Hebrews in chapter 10. This drawing near and also holding fast our confession. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, what, the place the priest went once a year kind of in fear of death? Yes! Yes! How on earth do we do that? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he inaugurated us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. No doubts. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, but then he goes on and says, "Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, without wavering." I, I believe God will help us. Keep on believing, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate the word. There it is hard, tough, and that's provoke, which means to you know when someone provokes you, they stick a finger in your ribcage how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us draw near with confidence, with boldness, to the extent that it looks almost like we're over the top. Almost presuming. But it isn't because of something in us. It's because Jesus has paid the price, has made us acceptable, and tells us to do this. We're coming to the throne of grace. The throne of God is shown in Scripture in a number of ways. It it could be a throne of judgment, a throne of glory, a throne of righteousness, a throne of rule and dominion, a throne of mercy. But here it's called the throne of grace. It's where the Lord sits to dispense grace. When, it's, when, he's, when he's judging, it's his throne of judgment. When he's being wrathful, it's his throne of wrath. But here, it's his throne of grace. That's what he's doing. He's dispensing grace. So when we come to the throne of grace, we are not going to be judged. Because it's the throne of grace today. We're not going to be dismissed because it's the throne of grace. It's what God is now doing. And the scripture tells us when we come boldly to receive grace and mercy, we arrive at a throne which is the throne of grace. God, God's heart is already fixed upon doing us more good than we think we deserved. Do you get it? His heart is already more eager to do us good than we are to receive that good it's bigger than we imagine he's more for us than we've thought he who didn't withhold his only son but delivered him up for us all how shall he not freely with him give us all things Okay, don't come up with a shopping list of this and that all things is everything you need for life and godliness it's all the help you need in time of trouble Do you know what? When we come boldly, we're not even pleading our case. Jesus is doing that. We're not defending ourselves. Jesus is doing that. I have an advocate. I have a witness. I've got a barrister on my case. We boldly draw near to God to receive mercy and find grace. Let's let's think about that. Okay. First of all, let me emphasize the word receive. To receive mercy and grace. In other words, when you walk away, you've got it. Right? If I'm going to give you something and you receive it, when you leave my presence, you've got it. I could give away a five pound note here, but I'm not, I haven't got one. <laughs> I don't even think there's one down there. I don't have a pound coin in my pocket, but never anyway. mind. If I give you something and you receive it, it's now yours, you go away with it. We come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace now. So we've now got it. We've now received it. We don't go away hoping that we will receive it. We do receive it. We come in need of mercy, perhaps for weakness or failure, perhaps just because we're hard-pressed and weary and we get mercy and grace to help us. Somewhere in the States, there's a place that's got two roads that cross and they're called mercy and grace. Isn't that good? Notice the scripture here says mercy and grace. They're often put together like that in the gospels, in the epistles rather, but generally the other way around. It usually says grace, mercy, and sometimes grace, mercy, and peace. Peace is the result of grace and mercy. But I need to do a bit of work with you here right now. Because if you ask most Christians to explain grace, what they explain is mercy. See, the mercy of God finds us and redeems us, pays our debt, makes sacrifice for our sin. And so he forgives us and rescues us and cleanses us. All right? Mercy puts away our sin and makes us acceptable. But grace goes beyond that. The grace of God goes further because God himself then chooses to indwell us And empower us and equip us to live for Him. Let me give that in a headline. Grace works. Grace is at work and does things. Grace is an active thing. Listen to Paul talking about the grace of God. By the grace of God I am what I am and His grace toward me did not prove vain. In other words... His grace worked and is working. I worked even more than all of them he's comparing himself to other apostles yet not I but the grace of God with me God's grace working in me makes me work hard. You got it? Grace works. Grace is not just picking you up when you've got it wrong grace enables you empowers you to do it well to get it right to live uprightly, godly to overcome sin to say no to the world, the flesh and the devil grace does that it's God's empowering presence now Jesus, you understand me when I say when most people think they're talking about grace they're talking about mercy the problem is this that the picture of forgiveness and the picture of what Jesus did done on the cross for us has been wrapped up for too long in the traditions of many of the churches particularly perhaps the more traditional churches and especially the Catholic church which is like you're a sinner, you're a failure you're not going to get any better but just keep confessing it and you keep getting forgiven right? that, that, that's, a, that's a kind of bit of the gospel it's a gospel of mercy, God will keep forgiving you like one Frenchman said the good God will forgive me my sins, that's his job What's missing from that is grace. Grace is God coming with power to equip you, to empower you. The grace of God. See, you can't make sense of those sort of statements by Paul unless you understand this grace comes to bring equipping and change. So you don't stay the same. You start a process of being changed and changed and growing and growing because the grace of God is at work in you. Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is who at work? God is at work in you. To want to do and to do what is pleasing to him. How is God at work in you? By grace. By grace. Grace is active. It's powerful. Grace goes further than Mercy. Grace, let me give you a few scriptures here that talk about it. Grace teaches us. Grace equips us. Grace works in us. It was at work in Paul. Grace is at work in us. Otherwise, we'll never overcome anything, and we'll only be repeating the same sins and constantly returning for forgiveness. But grace enables us to resist and to be renewed and to grow and to change. Let me give you that in some words that i put together. To compare these two. If mercy is the heart of God our Father then grace is his hand, his help. It's where he gets involved. Through Jesus God is committed to giving us both pardon and power so life changes. God is committed to that because that's what Jesus bought on the cross. Both pardon and For our failures and for our past. And power for a new life in Him. Mercy and grace. It's the order we find them in here. We're in trouble, we're in need. We go boldly to God, to His throne of grace. And we receive, firstly, mercy to restore us. And then grace to empower us. When do we do this? whenever we need to, to help in time of need. I like that word help. I picked it up from the Psalm 33 this morning. See, Jesus, God, provides more than a sympathetic hearing. He really is our helper. He stretches out his hand as well as his heart. God is committed to being our helper. Now that may seem demeaning. I'm making God my helper. Yeah, because you need help. Don't we? We need help. Again, Hebrews comes back to this later. It says in Hebrews 13:6, The Lord is my helper. It's quoted in the Old Testament. The Lord is my helper, I'll not be afraid. What will man do to me? Psalm 118. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God, our helper, our helper. It's written throughout the Old Testament. I started looking yesterday and I gave up because there are dozens of references in the Psalms, just the Psalms, to the Lord being our helper. Dozens. In just the Psalms, let alone the prophets. God is our helper. He's the sustainer of my soul. God delights in being our helper. He gives us aid, strength, support. Whatever it is that we face in life, he is committed to being with us, and to help us. He is not just watching to see how you get on. He wants you to know His presence and His help. Here's the test, I'll tell you how you do. No, God is not the school teacher. He's the Father, and Jesus is our brother, in that sense, and He's committed to helping us helping us. Barbara was giving me a little testimony earlier on about how the Lord's helped her this week. Who can help us as the Lord can? Who else is endless in their resources of wisdom and power and love? See, I, I, I run out of energy. I just get tired. I'm thinking, not another phone call today. No, no, I don't want to do any more today. So. God never runs out of kindness, of power, of wisdom, of focus. He's totally committed to our good, to being our helper. The Lord is our helper when we're in trial or in suffering, or when suffering includes being ill. He's our helper when we're facing temptation. In the narrower sense we tend to use nowadays is where we're being, we're being pushed towards sin. And we know we are, and we're kind of struggling. He is our helper. You know, it isn't just when you become a Christian, this is true. When you call upon the name of the Lord, he will what? Save you. So when the temptation of sin is hitting you hard, you just, all you've got to do is, Lord Jesus, save me! I'm going to sink here if you don't grab hold of me, Lord Jesus. All right. Has not to be what we do at that moment in time. But he's committed to that. The Lord is our helper. When we have failed in sin, he's our helper. When we're hurt, disappointed, or offended, the Lord is our helper. When we need wisdom, courage, strength, who are you going to call? The Lord is not Ghostbusters, don't go. The Lord is our helper. But these scriptures come, in Hebrews, always with warnings. And there's an implied warning in this. See to it. See to it. There's a series of see to it instructions in Hebrews. There's a couple in other bits of Paul's epistles as well, so I'll make a connection there too. In Hebrews 12.15, Scripture clearly warns us that the failure to draw near to God and get the grace to meet our need, does not just leave us without help, it can lead us to growing a root of bitterness, which will cause many to be troubled. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, misses getting hold of grace. Simple as that. That no one misses getting hold of the grace that they need, and that is freely available to them through Jesus. Because when they miss getting the grace they need, a root of bitterness can grow. And it causes trouble. And by it, many are defiled. That, my friends, is a dandelion. In case you haven't seen one for a while. When I was a boy, I held my... Dad gardening and so on, and we had a, a weed in our borders which was called horsetail. I, don't, I did photos of that, some nasty thing. The thing about horsetail is this, no matter how much you pull it out, there's still roots there, it'll grow. As long as there's any bit left in the soil, it will grow. Do you know what? The, why I make that comparison to us? Wherever we are hurt or offended or disappointed in life, We need to be healed. We need to find grace to help. Otherwise, we're nurturing a dangerous weed which will cause trouble and affect others. Don't be deceived. What you don't get help for, but rather harbor and hide, will have a damaging effect. Choosing to nurse your hurts is like putting baby bio on your dandelions. Oh, look, lovely dandelion, dear. Let's put some plant feed on it. <laughs> Nursing your hurts is as daft as that. Get grace. Get help from the Lord that meets your need. Ask God to heal your hurts, to heal your heart. You know, there's a saying time heals all wounds. That is not biblical wisdom. Time does not heal all wounds, it just makes them scarce. The grace and mercy of God heals all wounds. Get grace to deal with your hurts, to deal with your disappointments, to deal with your offences. To fail to receive mercy and grace is like choosing to live your life holding your breath <laughs> and refusing water and food. do That looks like me. <laughs> That's not just foolish, it's potentially fatal. To not get grace for your hurts and your wounds is not just silly, it's potentially fatal. We're commanded to see to it, to get grace. We're being disobedient if we don't. And if only my missing the grace of God was only a personal issue, but it it isn't, it affects others root of bitterness in my heart will affect others. Don't miss the language of Scripture here. This is addressed to us together. We must see to this together. We need to be praying for one another and encouraging one another and stirring one another to keep getting grace. Mercy and grace to help in time of trouble. Remember what we saw in 1 John? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he will ask. And God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. You know, that's, that's a me taking my friend to God and saying, Lord th- Jesus, brother so-and-so needs grace. Please help him. He's struggling. He's missing it. He's, he's making a mess of things. I'm praying for him, Lord. Yeah? Not, oh, well, look at him. <laughs> well, I didn't think he'd come to any good. I'm praying for him that God will give him life. Why? Because getting grace absolutely matters for every single one of us. And I need to be as passionate that my friends are not missing the mercy and grace of God as I'm getting it for myself. Equally passionate that my friends are laying hold of all that is theirs in Jesus. All the help they need to get through life. You see, I don't want to depress you, but trouble will come. Trouble will come. Every day, in various circumstances, we face Times of need. Some trouble we start for ourselves, some just arrives. Job said this, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For man is born for trouble like sparks fly upward. Scripture says, Don't consider it some strange thing that you come into times of testing and trouble for every one of us there are moments and events for which we need the help of the Lord and the grace of the Lord the danger is at that moment when we're under pressure when trouble arrives we turn inwards and look to see what we've got and like old Mother Hubbard the cupboard is bare (laughs) we never have the resources in ourselves get used to it folks You will never look in there and find all you need. It isn't. It's not there. It comes from the Lord. He calls it salvation. Here today we're calling it mercy and grace. We don't have the resources. We turn to the Lord and when we do so, we do it how? Boldly. And we ask and we receive from Him mercy and grace to help us in our time of need that's the deal sounds a good deal to me I don't know why we think there's a better better plan than that we're not alone he's our helper help is not withheld it's freely available through Jesus come and boldly ask and receive let me use this picture for some of us today Imagine you're driving down a rough road. I don't know if you can see there's deep ruts there and deep sides to that track. You're driving down a rough road, the momentum of the descent's carrying you, the wheel ruts are deep. But you don't actually want to go down that way. But it's really hard to steer out. See, this is not about how hard you yank the wheel. You need more power. You need more traction. That is what God's grace is to us. It is his empowering presence, by the Spirit. I haven't mentioned the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit is the one who communicates Christ to us. It is His empowering presence that will make your hand on the steering wheel actually achieve something so you escape the downward route and you start to climb to better ground. It's His power in your hand just on the steering wheel. You're not making, the, you're not making all the energy. You're relying on His strength, on His energy. But nevertheless, you are still calling out to Him and saying, Lord, make me... Help me go there. The grace of God enables, equips, empowers us. You need to know how to get grace and mercy. And it must become our custom, our habit. Hold on to faith and the confession of your hope. Confession, by the way, is not merely quoting scripture, but making it personal. Use the Psalms and make them yours. Try these, for instance. Whenever I am in time of need, I will find grace from the Lord. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in the Lord. Whenever I have cares, I'll cast them upon him who cares for me. Whenever I'm hurt, I will get mercy and grace to help me. You make it personal. You go and do it. We keep coming boldly to God to receive his mercy and his grace. And if all you think of at that moment in time is a kid asking for ice cream, good, go and do it. Just like that. Lord, I really need help right now. And when you've asked... Go and act as having received it. That's, that's a kind of prophetic, faithful living in a way. Now, some of us know how to do that, but we do it in church, and we don't apply it to normal life. Here's how it works in church, you might say. Someone comes forward to be prayed for, and some of us are good at praying prophetically for people. So you're about to pray for them. You just, ask, you just in a moment, say, Lord, help me here, what do I pray? And then you go with whatever words he gives to you. And the person goes, whoa, you know, or something like that, or they cry, or, you know, you think, oh, the Lord just touched them. All you did was you asked him and then acted ready with whatever he gave you, yeah? Someone asks you for some advice, they're in real trouble and you, you're listening to them and your heart goes, oh, whoa, wait, I start? But you just, quite again, ask the Lord in your heart. You say, Lord, please help me. What do I say? How do I help my brother my sister? And whatever comes to you, because you haven't got any other clue, have you, really, you'll go with that. And and just, you know, you hope and you you push it forward. As I hope this helps you. And sometimes it really does, doesn't it? As you sympathize with your brother or sister and you offer them a little word of encouragement, you remember scripture. Listen, we've just got to learn to live like that all the time, not just doing church stuff. Ask, believe you've received his help, go and do it. Go and do it. Ask him for wisdom. Pick up the phone, make the phone call you've been dreading for three days. Ask him for help. Believe that he is going to help you, walk in and talk to the boss. Yeah? Real life. I'm not saying praying for one another isn't real life. You understand I'm making... I don't want Christianity to be something that only happens at, you know, between 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock on a Sunday morning. You're the same person the rest of the week and you need God to be your helper the rest of the week and I'm telling you this is how we do it, folks. You ask, you believe you've received something from him and then you act accordingly. You won't know you've got it until you need it. Right? Make me brave to face my boss. Well, brave is when you walk and you draw a breath and you start. That's when he's helping you. That's when I'll help you. Make the decision, take the action, believing that God will help you. Perhaps you've never started to receive the mercy and grace of God this morning. You're in need of forgiveness and you want to come to him. You recognize your past is not a good one. I want to tell you this. If you will believe just this, that Jesus is your sacrifice and your great high priest, you can come to the Father through faith in him today. And today you can receive pardon and peace, forgiveness peace reconciliation. Why? Because Jesus already paid the price for that in full. There's no cost on your part apart from humility and surrender to him. But you then need to go on and ask and to receive his grace daily, even hour by hour, to empower you so that he becomes your helper, your sustainer as you navigate the rough tracks of life we're in this together, seeking for the mercy and grace of God for one another. There will be times when we need a brother or sister to speak God's words to us or to pray for us, and we need to be ready to do the same for them. But beyond that brother or sister who's our uh, immediate help, it's Jesus himself who is our great high priest, who stands in the highest heaven yet still sympathizes with our weaknesses. It can sound very distant that Jesus is in the highest heaven, but he still sympathizes with us. And he will supply mercy and grace in every time of need. Amen. Let's pray. We receive your word this morning, Lord. It comes to us like a, like a, a, a gale, a great wind sometimes. It blows the cobwebs away. It blows the, the web of lies, as one Old Testament prophet put it. We also, we've been trapped into wrong thinking. Again and again we find ourselves there, Lord. We imagine it to be like this and we've supposed it to be like that, but the Word of God tells us, no, it isn't like that. Our God is for us. He's utterly willing to be our helper in every part of life, wherever there is need. You tell us to come boldly and receive from you so we are truly helped to deal with every circumstance, with every challenge. Therefore we say with the Psalms, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. We say with Romans, the God who is for us makes us say, who can be against us? We thank you, our eternal God, that you are not ashamed, you do not disdain to be called our helper. The one who stands with us and strengthens us and supplies us. We pray that we may not lose sight of that truth as we go from a Sunday into a Monday and as the the, the grinding pressure of life pushes us down tracks we don't want to be on. But we keep coming to you and calling to you and receiving from you every time, every moment, every need. We thank you that all of this is ours not because We say it is, but because Jesus has paid for it to be so. Every good gift comes from the Father, through the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord Jesus, you in your person and in your prayers are still our great high priest, sympathizing, making intercession. Oh, we bless you and thank you, Lord. Amen.